right, all right. Welcome in, welcome in, welcome, welcome, welcome. So good morning, good afternoon, and good night at whatever time you may view this particular live stream. I'm your host, Darshawn McAway, and we have a very special guest. We have Carol Roth. She's going to be uh, blessing us, excuse me, with her presence today. Uh, Carol Roth is a recovering investment baker, TV pundit, and host, and a New York Times bestselling author of The Entrepreneur Equation. But let me add this. Let me add this, guys. She also came out with the war on small business, but today we're going to be talking to her about her, her latest book, You Will Own Nothing, which will drop sometime in July. So without any further ado, let me go ahead and bring up uh, Carol Roth, and we're going to get, talk, uh, get to talking with her to find out exactly how will we not own anything. Um, Hi, Darshan. How hey, are you? Hey, I'm doing well. I was <laughs> looking at two different here. screens. <laughs> So how's life? How's life going? Uh, life is excellent. It's so nice to be here with you. I'm feeling a little underdressed for the situation. I didn't know that there was like a, a dress code. You're looking so nice and uh, business-like today, but uh, it's no. a pleasure to be with you. It's, it's quite all right. So let me tell you how I came across um, reaching out to you. Uh, funny enough, right? I was looking up um, how to become an inventor, right? How to really do it the right way after all these years. And there was a guy named Josh Malone who came out with a bunch of balloons. And somewhere in that thread, uh, your book popped up and it said, you will own nothing. So I said, well, let me go over here, find out what she's talking about. Then it took me to your Twitter page and I went down your Twitter feed and I said, you know what? She seems like a person I can like maybe talk to. And I looked at your um, your book title and it said July 18, 2023. I said, oh, she has a book coming out soon. So I said, let me reach out to her, see what happens. And just like that, here you are. And this was just a couple of days ago. I know it's amazing the power of Twitter to connect and uh, I'm somebody who likes to make those new connections and obviously spread important messages to all different kinds of audiences so it is a pleasure to be a little bit more formally connected off of Twitter and I'm, I'm thrilled that you took the initiative to reach out. Yeah, no problem. No problem at all. So let's let's get into it a little bit. What is uh, You Will Own Nothing? What is that book really about? So you may have heard of the phrase, you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. It is one of the top eight predictions, actually the number one prediction from a group called the World Economic Forum for 2030. And when I first saw this making the rounds on social media, you'll own nothing, and you'll be happy, coming from an organization that was littered with the global you know, elite, the political elite, the business elite, other influencers, I'm like, you know, this is probably one of those things social media got wrong, because I know being in the financial arena and helping people create wealth for more than a quarter century, that wealth and, and ownership are tied together. You know, if you don't own things, particularly things that have the opportunity to retain value or appreciate in value, you can't create wealth. So I'm like, how is it that this organization that's littered with these political elites would be predicting the end of private property. So I did research and to be honest, in this particular case, it didn't take very much research to find this video that was published by the World Economic Forum. And then to do a little bit more research to see that they've actually been repackaging this idea since about 2016, first from an article, then some videos with different names, and then ultimately coming up with this prediction video. And to me, that's, you know, that's pretty concerning because I know throughout history, 
people who didn't own things um, were not only unfree, but they were usually miserable if they survived at all. So I did a little bit more research and it took me to another quote unquote conspiracy theory that isn't a conspiracy theory, which is this idea of a new world order or new financial world order. And again, this sounds very conspiratorial unless you think the current president of the United States is a conspiracy theorist, which no matter what you think of him, you probably don't think that's the case. So if you go to the White House's website right now, you can look out remarks that President Biden gave to the Business Roundtable, which is all the fancy CEOs in the United States. And on March 21st of 2022, he said, you know, there is going to be a new global economic order, you know, not just the economy, but a new order in the world. It happens about every three or four generations. And then goes on to say there's going to be a new world order out that and we've got to lead it. I don't know who he is. He's speaking to the, the CEOs of these companies, but, you know, he's putting this out there. And so if you go through and you study history, as he alluded to, we are sort of 80 years into our run in the center of the global financial universe, and it's getting a little long in the tooth. There are a lot of issues which we can talk about that are happening. Um, but before us, it was the British, and before the British, it was the Dutch. So this is something, again, not conspiratorial. It's just a reality of history. So if you are these elite people and very wealthy and well-connected, and you see that the global stakes are going to change, you have a couple of choices, right? You could just like hope it works out for you, or you could proactively try to make sure it works out for you. And right. I think that's that's really the thesis of the book, that you have all of these people who see that the financial shakes, shake, the stakes around the world are shifting, and they are trying to control every resource they can. And in the process, you will own nothing. And that second piece about you'll be happy, they're actually trying to get you to buy into the concept to make it easier for them to do. Right. So it's um, it's pretty amazing that you're coming out with this book because I started thinking about the things that I own. And I was like, I really don't own as much. I own my intellectual property from my books um, because yeah. I started my own publishing company. But as far as everything else, um, I don't own anything. Like, I, you know, I don't own my home, which is probably the biggest asset anybody could really have. Um, so what happens when you don't own anything? Are they trying to make us like uh, like robots to just do whatever they want us to do? Like, what's why, why do they want us not to own anything? Well, certainly it's mostly because they would like to own everything and they want to re retain that power and wealth structure for themselves. And they don't really seem to care about who it hurts in the process. So I think that's the most important thing, that this is basic human nature, you know, just just greed and power and control and trying to preserve that power structure. But if you look at it from all the different aspects and I, and I go in deep into all different kinds of things in the book, um, but, you know, if it, it's the technology that we're no longer owning or it's the homes that people like yourself are no longer owning because corporations are coming in and competing with you to own a home and the Federal Reserve has been driving up prices and transferring that wealth creation opportunity to Wall Street from Main Street, basically, they see you as an opportunity to gain more wealth from themselves. They want to take your life and they want to rent it back to you as a subscription or as a service or as a fee collector. And that gives them more power as these stakes change without sort of the concern for you. And if you buy into the fact is, oh, well, isn't it so much more convenient that I don't own things and that I can just, you know, go around and depend on everyone else, 
you don't realize the freedom you're giving up, the agency that you're giving up, the wealth creation opportunities that you're giving up and, you know, kind of the, the stakes. I mean, if, if they own everything, they also kind of own you in a way. And that's a, a very scary proposition. And it's very different. If you want to make the personal choice to not own things, that's one thing. But to have these barriers erected so that you can no longer participate in the American dream in the same way by their choice, that is where the problem is. Gotcha. So let's let's talk a little bit of money. And and as a disclaimer from both of us, this yes. is not financial advice. <laughs> Thank you. you know, <laughs> yes. I've, watched, I've watched enough of your streams to know, <laughs> hey, make sure you put out a disclaimer. So this is not financial <laughs> advice. Go seek your financial advisor for advice. Right. So, so here's the question. Um, they want to change the money into one currency. Okay, I understand that. With all the inflation and all the debt, is it possible for us to just for the entire world to just do a reset and start from zero? Or would that just collapse everything? So what has happened traditionally throughout history? And again, you know, we, we want to take the speculation out of it and just kind of look to these benchmarks, because at the end of the day, we don't know exactly what's going to happen and things may shift and change the tenor of what happens. And frankly, they may try and fail on things and, and try something else. But if you look at what's happened over time, you know, not every war has brought about a new financial world order, but every new financial world order has been preceded by a war, particularly in modern times. And when the Dutch transitioned to the British rule and the British transitioned to the U.S. rule in terms of who held the world's reserve currency and really you know, played that that anchor role, it was all preceded by war. And, you know, everybody who was on the winning side coming together and basically making up um, you know, kind of a rule for what was going to happen kind of the next time around. One of the crazy things that I found out in doing research for this book was that the Bretton Woods Conference, which was really the conference that put the U.S. in the, in the global pole position, the advisor from the U.S., who was our, our, our Treasury Secretary, Harry Dexter White, was actually found out later to be a Stalinist agent. And so the Russians had put him in place with the express purpose of trying to destroy the British Empire, because remember, they were the ones in the pole position. They couldn't put themselves in the pole position. So they thought that the U.S. would be better to at least to get rid of the, the British for the time being, which is staggering to think about. That's how we came into the pole position, because, you know, Russia was behind the scenes as one of the puppet masters. Totally crazy things there. So I do think it's realistic to look at some of the geopolitical tensions out there, whether it's you know, China, Taiwan, probably not Russia, Ukraine yet, unless that you know expands somewhere else. Um, Iran is obviously increasing their nuclear capabilities. So you know, any of those things that create a big, um, you know, scarily you know major war, in addition to obviously the loss of the potential loss of life, which is the most important thing it can also be a catalyst to do some sort of financial reset. You also have a situation going on right now where um, you know, countries around the globe are trying to align and to de-dollarize themselves and trying to shut down that dollar as the anchor of the global economy. Certainly China and Russia are a big push in there. But the, you know, the whole BRICS alliance um, is starting to expand. There are a lot of the Middle East and North Africa region countries that have de-dollarized, particularly smaller ones. So there is sort of other pushes going on where you could see a situation that maybe there isn't this 
official catalyst, but maybe you start having these different alliances and blocks of trade that form that create a, a very different financial backdrop for us, particularly in the US. Got you. So let's do this. Let's talk legacy, right? Because a lot of this is going to boil down to what you're going to be able to pass on. And let's yeah. ask you a question. What What is your legacy looking like uh, for you and your family? What does that look like for you right now? Yeah, so it's it's interesting. It's something that I've um, been very focused on. We actually created a legacy planning program called Future File, uh, based on a file that my father created for my sister and I. Should something happen to him after we lost our mom and stepmom, and he was in a freak accident, and we basically use this planning to you know know his wishes and his information, find out where everything is, be able to lay him to rest, and frankly save you know ten more than ten thousand dollars and hundreds of hours in the process. So, you know, for me, obviously part of it is just putting out your wishes and information and making sure that all of your ducks are in a row, uh, which I've, you know, created a product around. So, so that's kind of a, a focus. The legacy, you know, for me, it, the, the books are a big part of it because I, I've been doing things like documenting what happened during COVID and giving people this plan to fight back as the world's stakes change and you will own nothing, um, you know, specifically so that they can get their own financial futures in order. I don't have children. I have a, a husband who I've been married to for a very long time, about 24 years now. And, um, and so, you know, that's a, an interesting question in terms of our broader family and also charities who will be the, the financial beneficiaries of the legacy. But I hope that the information legacy and the ability to reach millions of people around the globe um, and better their financial futures for themselves and their families, to me, I see that as actually a, a bigger legacy opportunity. Yeah, I love it. I, I looked into it and it's something that I've been doing myself, like kind of leaving little footnotes behind. But I think I like your system better because it kind of lays everything out there. I got an opportunity to uh, watch the video that you had about your father and, and why you decided to put the company together. And I thought it was brilliant. Thank um, you. But, tra you know, transitioning from that, another brilliant idea. And this this is uh, what I didn't know, but I'm so thankful for the Internet. You have your own action figure doll. Like, <laughs> what, right. how did, here we, like come, here we go. <laughs> Like, how did that, how did that even happen? Like, what, how, what was that process? So, you know, this is, this is a, you know, being a, a marketing person and, and somebody who, you know, has advised lots of companies on marketing and customer loyalty. One of the companies I've worked with for about 17 years is named Integrity Toys. They are a family run business that does fashion celebrity and other collectible dolls. And uh, so I've been working with them and, and sort of their outsourced chief customer officer for a long time. And when I wrote my very first book, The Entrepreneur Equation, I wanted to do, you know, kind of an interesting marketing thing. And I was also told by the buyers um, of the book where I was on the cover that I was too attractive to be taken seriously as a business author. And so that they should probably ugly me up or take me off the cover. <laughs> <laughs> to which I was like, no, we're not doing that. We're going to double right. down. So I used this. I, I went to my, you know, my partners and said, hey, you know, if I pay for it, you know, can you make me a doll that I look like, like on the cover of the book? And they're like, yeah, if you're paying for it, sure, whatever, that's fine. And so we did that. It was a premium that if you bought so many copies of the book, you could get 
the fashion doll, of course, for some of my, you know, celebrity friends that they just, you know, got one for me. <laughs> yeah. I think my family members had to buy more copies uh, in order to get one. But yeah, that was kind of the basic thing. And uh, to this day, people still ask about it, still try to get it. And uh, if you, you look up Carol Roth fashion doll, it's you know all over the internet. So let's talk about this entrepreneurial phase uh, that you went through. Um, is, is it from my understanding that you work for an employer and did you start it, did you start, excuse me, to fund yourself with your entrepreneurial ideas or did you just jump out the window and say, hey, I'm just a full-time entrepreneur and you guys are just going to have to hire me, you know, through your company as an independent? Yeah. So let's take one step back even further. I was the first person in my family to go to college and way back, you know, in the mid nineties, I racked up $40,000 in college debt, which is the average of what somebody racks up today, but a really long time ago. And so my philosophy based on my father's financial guidance was I'm going to do everything I can to pay down this debt. And that's why I went into investment banking. So I worked for a traditional investment bank um, and really enjoyed it. But at the same time, lived in a 400 square foot studio with a cardboard box and a sheet over it next to, to my bed as my bedside table. And just, you know, did everything I can to save every dollar. And I paid off that debt in a year and a half time. And that was the most important thing. So once I was able to be debt free, then I used my empl employment status to start building up my own wealth. And once I had gotten to a point where I had enough, I felt like I had a cushion, I could invest. And oh, by the way, by that point in time, I then got married and had another person who was also earning, I felt like I had a little bit more flexibility. So the first thing we actually did together is that we started our own investment bank and became a broker dealer and went out on our own. And we found out that while we love each other, we probably didn't want to work together and be together 24-7. And that it was good for the relationship to have a little bit of space. Um, so he continued on doing more of the traditional employment. And one of the things that I found during investment banking is that I like to do other kinds of consulting and advisory work. And that sort of shifted me in that realm. And that's also when I started picking up the media stuff and doing other things as well. But it really was, you know, making sure that I had that financial foundation because it, the thing that money buys that I think people don't appreciate that's the most valuable is flexibility. It gives you the opportunity to do whatever it is that you want to do. And so, you know, I was very austere for a short period of time to be debt free and to get myself into a position where I could accumulate some money to have that flexibility. And then I had the flexibility for the rest of my life. Other people do it the opposite way where they're like, well, I'm just going to live my life, but then they're worrying about money for the rest of their life. And I just didn't think that was a good trade for me personally. Um, and uh, would, would advise if anyone said, are you happy with doing that? Yes, I would definitely advise anybody following that path. Right. So uh, aside from all the business stuff, like what do you do to kind of like unwind and step away from the world? Like what's one of those things that you just say, hey, I need like a full 24 hours. Leave me alone. <laughs> so um, I don't know if you've ever heard the term whale for the casino industry. I am a whale for the spa industry. It's somebody who goes in and just spends a ridiculous amount of money uh, on you know that endeavor. And I, I love going to the spa personally. Uh, I'm also very into sports. So my husband 
and I watch a lot of sports and we both exercise regularly. I have a pinball machine, so I'll play some pinball. I enjoy writing and reading, which kind of crosses the line into what I do professionally. So a lot of the work stuff is actually kind of fun for me. I don't really view it um, as much as as work and some of the stuff that is kind of hobbyish almost. But I do take a lot of time to make sure that happens. And I'm also somebody who's very particular about sleep. So again, kind of like my philosophy with money is like you go hard and then you kind of preserve that flexibility. I do that with work too. I'm very, very focused and efficient during my work day. And I get eight to nine hours of sleep on a regular basis. Um, and I think that's really important. So um, you mentioned your investment company. Uh, what type of things or what type of industries do you guys invest in? So right now, so I have this kind of holding company and we do make investments. And what I found is that the early stage investing just isn't for me. You have to be in so many deals and see so much flow to have that diversification that when, you know, 19 of them, you know, kind of conk out and the 20th one is a huge success. The 20th one makes up for all of them. So I prefer things that are later stage um, that are maybe like an established middle market business that is looking for either an exit or, you know, an IPO sale, something like that. And so it's, it's capital and a bridge. And then I also do things where I will go on boards or be an advisor for a stake in the business. So I might actually not even put, um, you know, money into it, but I put my time and my expertise into it in exchange. So I do a little bit of that, but I tend to focus on things that I know and understand. So some technology, um, things that are in the consumer space, uh, some healthcare. So it, it just kind of depends, like not a big real estate person other than personally advocating that people should buy it, but I'm not like the real estate expert. Um, I do own real estate, but it's not sort of my like center of the plate thing that I do. And I don't understand like super high technology things. And one of the things my dad always taught me was, you know, if you don't understand something, don't invest in it. And I think that that's critical. Okay. What's some valuable information you would like to leave with the, with the listeners, something that you've learned throughout your life? Well, I think the most important thing, and particularly doing the, the research for the book, You Will Own Nothing, is the important uh, importance of ownership. And so I do think as we move forward, if you've got your money sitting around in cash and it's not working for you, and particularly with the threats of things like central bank digital currencies, that you want to have that invested in assets that they have the opportunity to appreciate and value with the appropriate risk profile for you. So diversification is great, but you know, getting to the point where you can own a home or own land that's productive in some way, whether that's farmland, timber, water rights, whatever, uh, owning some physical precious metals are a, a great uh, diversification element as well. Um, potentially owning your own business, investing in other businesses. If you work for a company, you know, and you don't have stock and ownership in that business, think about either asking for it or if they won't give it to you, going to work for another company where you can participate in the upside of what you're building. There are a lot of companies, whether they're private or public, that will uh, grant stock options as part of your compensation. And you want to be an owner and you want to see the work that you're putting in 
have that ownership piece so you can participate in the upside. So they, the, the elite may want you to own nothing, but I want you to own as much as possible. And uh, hopefully, you know, if you get a chance to read the book, um, you'll get a little bit more knowledge and empowerment on exactly how you can fight all of these crazy forces and then also make the right decision for you. Awesome. So let me say this to you. I, I'm very uh, appreciative of your time. I thank you so much because I got a chance to do a lot of research on you and you've been on some huge platforms. You've been doing media for such a long time. I remember you a few years ago. And uh, there's one video in particular where you talked about the first impression. And I think ah. this was around the time that you were coming out with the entrepreneur equation. And yeah. that information from that video is still like prevalent to this day. You know, wow. so your first impression uh, it made a first impression on me because I was like, let me contact her and see what's going on. So I really do want to thank you for that. Um, let's go ahead and tell everybody where they can find you and what uh, what events that you have coming up so we can close out the show. Absolutely. So on Twitter, which is the place that I'm most active, I'm at Carol J.S. Roth. And if you are interested in pre-ordering You Will Own Nothing, you can get it in your hands on July 18th. You can pre-order it at Amazon if you like the convenience bookshop.org if you like to support small business, basically wherever you get your books. And um, yeah, just leaving you with that message of ownership, go go out and own as much as possible and preserve that legacy for yourself and your family. Well, my name is Darshawn McAway. I'm the host of wildpodcast.me. And we have our special guest, Carol Roth. Thank you so much for uh, spending some time with me and uh, me learning about you and getting to know you. And you having your own action figure. I'm kind of jealous, you know. <laughs> the probably the first person and maybe the last one on the podcast with that, right? <laughs> right, right, right. So you guys have a good one and you sit tight. We'll see you guys next time. Peace.